So I'm sure that most of you have probably heard the name George Mueller before. The name George Mueller. He was uh, a Christian, a preacher, who lived uh, in England during the 19th century. And he was most well known for the orphanages that he would open. Uh, and when he would open those orphanages, he would often just be a man of great faith. He wouldn't go and, and ask for money. Not that that's necessarily wrong, but uh, he trusted that the Lord was going to provide. And I, I remember there was one story uh, where that morning the kids had no uh, food to eat or anything to, to drink. And the Lord in his providence, uh, a, a milk truck uh, broke down uh, right outside of the orphanage. All the milk was going to spoil. And so the children uh, got, uh, the Lord provided milk and food for them that morning. He was a man of, of great faith. And there's one story uh, about George Mueller that made me think of our passage this morning. When George was 39 years old, he began to pray for the conversion uh, of five of his friends. He made sure that he was going to pray every single day, uh, whether you know, out at sea or on land, whether sick or healthy, he would pray every day for these five individuals and their salvations. And at 18 months, the first of the five was converted. And so George thanked God, and then he continued to pray for the remaining four. And then five years later, the second was converted. He thanked God and continued to pray for the remaining three. Six years passed, and then the third was converted. And then for 36 years after that, George continued to pray for those remaining two brothers and their salvations. But in 1897, 52 years after that initial prayer that George made, he passed away and went to be with the Lord. And two of them still remained unconverted. However, those prayers of devotion would soon be answered. Shortly after his death, both of them came to Christ and are now praising around the throne right beside George Mueller. And the story has many lessons to it, but the reason that I bring it up is because this morning we're looking at the story of Simeon and Anna. And Simeon and Anna are two people who were, who were well into their years, but continued to be devoted to the service of the Lord. And we're going to look at their story now. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're looking at verses 21 to 40. Hear God's word this morning. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was, whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, 
and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. With this morning's passage, we're given three examples of people who were devoted to the Lord and who faithfully testified to the work of Christ. And the goal of this sermon then is to get us to see that this is something worth imitating in our own lives. You know, we can look to the people of the Bible and they're partly there for us to imitate. You know, Paul says to uh, Christians, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I think this story is here partly uh, to testify to the work of Christ and partly to get us to imitate these people, that we would look at their examples and say, you know, I want to be like that. And so the first example is that of Mary and Joseph. Now up to this point, we've already seen really the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph, and especially that of, of Mary. You know, Mary is, is just a 13 or 14-year-old virgin who received in, in faith and humility the message that she would give birth to the Messiah. And she knew that, that she would get funny looks because of it. She knew that people wouldn't believe her story, that an angel came and told her this, and that she was giving birth to the promised Messiah. And she knew that some would immediately think, of course, this woman has been unfaithful to, her, to, to the man she is betrothed to. But even in all of that, she still trusted in the Lord. And we see in our passage that uh, her faithfulness, the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph, continues on. Verses 21 to 24 says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so what we see here is that we have three instances of obedience by Mary and Joseph to the law of God. First, according to the Abrahamic covenant, and then restated again in Leviticus 12, verse 3, Mary and Joseph are to take their newborn son to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if you remember, circumcision is it's very important for the Jews. You know, we're first introduced to this concept of circumcision in Genesis 17, where God makes a covenant with Abraham and he tells him that all of the males within his household must be circumcised as part of the covenant he is making with God. It was a practice, it was, it was supposed to be practiced by all of his descendants then from that day on. And the purpose of it, it was to mark the, the descendants of Abraham as the people of God. And so, because Mary and Joseph were God-fearing Jews, they do what every Jew was called to do. They go and they circumcise their child on the eighth day, marking him as one of the Jews. And so we see here, they obey and they honor the law of God. And then second, we see that they obey the law of God by dedicating their firstborn male child to the Lord. Verse 23 says, As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now Luke here is speaking somewhat prophetically. Though all firstborn males are consecrated to the Lord, there's only one child that we can say was fully holy to the Lord. And that person is Jesus. And so here Luke is already pointing us to the uniqueness of this child. So this command here uh, that in, in verse 23, that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, that's not a direct uh, command to the, to the people uh, of God. He's quoting there uh, Exodus 13 verse 2, where it doesn't actually bring up this idea of holy to the Lord. And so Luke is, is uh, under the, the inspiration of the Spirit, interpreting that passage and bringing in this idea of holiness I really think to point to the holiness of our Lord and Savior. That He was completely sinless. He was born completely holy, unstained by original sin. And He never once in His life had an evil thought, did an evil action, had an evil intention, was completely sinless, completely holy unto the Lord. And then a third case of their obedience to the law is seen in verses 22 and 24. See, according to the law, after a woman gives birth to a son, she's considered unclean for 40 days, and she enters into a time of purifying. And I, I kind of tried to look up why that was the case. Why, why does childbirth, which is so highly elevated by God, um, why would that make someone unclean? And uh, when you look through the, the cleanliness laws, Leviticus 11 uh, to 16, uh, you'll notice that when, when people 
uh, lose the lifeblood that is in them when people, uh, when there's some sort of interaction between the outside and the inside, that this makes them uh, unclean. It makes them needing to go into a state of purification before they can enter uh, into the sanctuary. And so Mary, obviously, when you give birth, you have uh, like really the, the pinnacle of the inside meeting the outside. You have a new life coming into uh, being. And so uncleanliness doesn't have to do in the Old Testament with the idea of, of sinfulness necessarily. It's not sinful to bear children. It just brings you into the state of needing to be purified before the Lord. And Leviticus 12 verse 6 tells us that when the days of her purifying are complete, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And she shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And so to enter out of this state of uncleanliness, uh, a sacrifice needs to be made. Uh, something needed to uh, die, atonement needed to be made in order for us to be made clean. And so that's why Mary and Joseph are making this trip to Bethlehem from Jerusalem. The time for purification has come, and so they, they pack up the donkey and they head to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, making her clean once again. Now in all of this, all of these three examples of their obedience to the law, one phrase that we see here is that phrase itself. The law, the, the law of the Lord specifically is what Luke calls it. He mentions it four times here, three times in verses 22 to 24, and then he mentions it again uh, in verse 39, where he says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And so all of this really points us to the fact that a faithful follower of God is called to keep the law of God. Now we are to be diligent to do as the Lord has commanded us and to do it fully and properly. And now we interpret that in light of what Christ has done on the cross. And so uh, we don't go. We just had a child and uh, I didn't come and offer a turtle dove or, or a pigeon here uh, because we interpret our obedience to the law of God in light of what Christ has come and already done. And that's a bigger can of worms of what the law of God all entails, so I won't open that up this morning. But either way, Christians are never called to be lawless people. We are to be obedient to the commands and the laws of God, doing it, doing it with our, our full heart and doing it properly. And so a question for you to ask yourself is how important is that to you? I mean, how important is keeping the commandments of God for you? You know, is it simply a, a matter of when it's convenient? Or do you see it as something you must obey as a Christian? You know, God commands me that there should be no filthy language out of my mouth. I mean, do I think about that command? Do I honor that command when I'm hanging out with my friends? You know, maybe when my parents aren't around or, or it's a more uh, joking context. Am I, am I, are my words honoring to the Lord? Do I 
read my Bible because the Lord commands me to do that? Or do I simply do it when it's convenient for me? God commands me to bear the burden of my brother and sister. Yeah, I'll do that when it's convenient for me. God commands us not to forsake the gathering of the saints. Yeah, maybe I'll do that if I wake up on time or if I'm feeling at 100% health. You know, how important is obedience to the commands of God? Because it should be important for us. And another point of application we can take from this as well is that obedience to God, it's very important for us to obey God, but it has a, a greater impact than just ourselves. You see, Mary and Joseph, in their obedience, were actually having a universal impact. See, Galatians 4, verse 4 to 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, in order for Christ to rescue those who are under the condemnation of the Mosaic law, He Himself had to enter under that law and fulfill the law by completely obeying all of the commands of the law. And one of those commands is that sons are to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so Mary and Joseph, really in their obedience, played a, a, greater, played a part in God's greater plan. Their obedience was essential for Christ to fulfill the law. He had to be circumcised. And at eight days old, he's not getting up and, and walking to the priest to be circumcised. His parents needed to be obedient to that command. And they were. And their obedience has an eternal impact for all of humanity. And on a smaller scale, the same is true for all of us. When we obey God, it primarily affects our relationship with God and that our obedience to God draws us near to Him. It, it, it removes the sin that clogs up the relationship that we have with God, but it also has an impact outside of us. I mean, if you are, if you are married, your obedience to God positively affects more than just you. When you seek to love and follow the Lord in your marriage, that will cause your spouse to look at you and, Lord willing, be spurred on to do the same. If your spouse sees you as a student of the Word of God, Lord willing, it'll stir them on to do the same. If your spouse sees you going the extra mile to set aside your needs and meet their needs, it'll spur them on to do the same. If your spouse sees that in times when you normally get into arguments, you come in and you're gracious and you're calm, it's going to spur your spouse on to do the same. And the same applies for us with our children. And one of the best things that you can do for your children is to value obedience to God in your home. Let your children see that the things that you are teaching them, you actually believe them and you actually obey them. And when you do that, you're, you're showing them really the worthiness of Christ to be followed. And it's not only true if you're married, it's not only true if you have children, your neighbors, your employees, your siblings, your clients, your friends, your, your parents, they're all watching and will be affected in one way or another by your obedience to the law of the Lord. 
think Matthew 5, verse 16 says it well. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we are to follow the example of Mary and Joseph. We need to take obedience to God seriously because it affects more than just you and me. And so that's the the first example of our three. Second, uh, we are now introduced to a man named Simeon, a devout follower of the Lord. So look at verses 25 and 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this man, Simeon, he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except in this passage. And though what is said about him is not much, it is all good. He's described as a, as a man who is righteous and devout, waiting for the, the consolation, which means the, the comforting, the encouragement of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It's, it's few words, but what a way to be described. You know, if, I'm, if I'm ever like walking through a, a cemetery, for some reason I often like to to stop and look at just random stones and see what people have said about those who they love who have passed away. And sometimes I wonder to myself, what will people say when I die and when my gravestone is sitting there? What will I be remembered for? And as I was reading this passage, wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be, be great if we lived a life so that the words that are written on our gravestone could truthfully say these things. You know, Lucas, righteous and devout, eagerly waiting for the coming of the Lord and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That is how we should desire to be described as Christians. That's what we should really strive for in our lives. And on top of all these things listed about Simeon, We also see that he was a patient and a content man. We're told that the Spirit had revealed to him that he would not go to the grave before he saw the Messiah come. And we don't know how long ago that promise was given. It might have been given that morning. It might have been given a month ago. It might have been given 50 years ago. We don't know. But what what we do know was that he was content in the timing of the Lord. He was content in the timing of the Lord. Look at his words in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. We don't know how old Simeon is, but we do know that he's reaching the end of his life. And we can tell, as, as we read those words, we can tell that this man, he's ready. He's ready to depart and be with the Lord. But, then, but rather than saying and complaining, you know, why don't you just take me already? He's content in the timing of the Lord. He knows that if, if God has 
kept him around, then there still must be some purpose for him. And so Simeon was, was willing and joyful to do what God had called him to do, even though there may have been a, a desire to simply depart and be with the Lord. That's what Paul says. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with the Lord, but for your sake I am to remain. And that's really what contentment is. You know, contentment is, is joyfully surrendering to the timing of God. It's stepping back and saying, you know, I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this. I, I trust the Lord's timing in this. Even when I don't see or understand the plan of God, I don't need to because I trust in my God. It's saying I will continue to joyfully do my duty until the Lord calls me to do something else or calls me home. And so as Christians, we, we patiently wait on the timing of the Lord. And I want to encourage you this morning to persevere in that. In whatever situation you are in, the Lord has you in that. Do you believe that? That the Lord has you in that situation. And what He's calling for you to do is to trust in Him and to be joyfully content and satisfied with Him and in Him. For He is enough. He is enough. And now not only does Simeon portray for us an example of what devotion to God looks like and that He is righteous, devout, uh, filled with the Spirit. He is a content man. But we're also encouraged here by His words, verse 29 to 32. It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, this is the third song that we've seen so far uh, in the first two chapters of Luke, and it's very similar to that of Mary and Zechariah. But one new thing is introduced here uh, in Simeon's song, and that is that Christ is going to be a light for the Gentiles. Now, we hear this term Gentile a lot. It's all throughout our Bibles. Um, but just in case we're unfamiliar with what it actually means, essentially a Gentile is someone who is not Jewish. That's kind of like the basic definition. A Gentile is someone who is not Jewish. God had uh, categorized all of humanity into really two groups of people. There were Jews who were the physical descendants of Abraham. They'd been circumcised and they're specifically the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there was everybody else. You know, and, and so everybody else was all, all lumped into this group called the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were often associated with with evil or paganism, because they were not in covenant with the one true God. They were not part of the chosen people of God. But a major change in the plan of God's salvation takes place at the cross. We talk about oftentimes how much continuity, how much discontinuity is there between the old covenant and the new covenant. I think one case for the discontinuity, the, the newness of the new covenant is that now we have the introduction of the Gentiles 
into the people of God. Listen to the words. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want. Uh, from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 13 to 16. Paul has just talked about um, how God has taken us from being dead sinners, enemies of God, children of wrath, and He has made us new by His grace through faith. And now he talks here about what he calls the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel, starting in verse 13. Actually, let's start in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. As I said, this is what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed now in the coming of Christ. That God is reconciling not just the Jew to himself, but the Gentile as well. That those who were formerly strangers to the covenants of promise are now being brought to God, formed into one man as the one people of God. And except for maybe Aaron, who's not here today, all of us should rejoice in this. Because we are all Gentiles. We were not born as Jews, but because of Christ's sacrifice, we are now being brought in to a relationship with God. In fact, Gentiles now make up the majority of the church of Christ. And that is partly because the Jews, unfortunately, have chosen to reject their Savior. And Simeon prophesies that this is to come. Look at verse 34 and 35 and what he says. This is back in Luke 2. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So unfortunately, Christ's coming is not all roses and celebration. His coming is going to create a divide, a deep divide, within the people of Israel. We see in the accounts of Jesus' life that the greatest opposition that he faced was not from the Gentiles, but from his own people, the Jews. You know, it was the Jews who conspired to kill him. It was the Jews who betrayed him over to the Roman authorities. It was the Jews who cried out, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. John 1 says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And this was 
was prophesied long ago. Isaiah 8, verse 14 to 15 says of the Jews, For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. And if you think about it, this is really quite sad. I mean, the Jews had been waiting for this very moment to come, and yet when it came, they completely missed it. And they're still missing it today. It's like someone who, who waited for and prayed for their whole life to finally leave this, this terrible town, but the day when the train came, they were too stubborn to show up and get on the train. And really that's, that's true for all people today, not just the Jews. Now, even though Jesus offers them the forgiveness of sin, even though he offers them eternal life, freedom from slavery, a new, a new heart that can love and follow God, the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit, people still reject and oppose him. People still bite the hand that feeds them. People still spit in the face of the one who extends his hand of grace. And that's because of the, the sinful and hard hearts of all mankind. That's what Simeon says in verse 35, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Rejection of Christ reveals something that is going on in our hearts. And what is going on is that we don't want to submit to Jesus as Lord of our lives. Think back to our, our very first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had all of the blessings of God at their disposal. And yet, the lust to be like God and to be their own lords drove them out of the presence of God. And this sin has plagued humanity ever since. There is a desire for all of us to be lords of our own lives. And so when the message of the cross comes and it tells us that we are sinners and that we have no ability within ourselves to remove that sin and that we are going to be held accountable and suffer for that sin and that the only way out of that is to trust in Christ as Lord and he will forgive us of our sin. Instead of falling down and saying, Amen, praise the Lord, what do we say? We say thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather be the Lord of a dunghill than a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. And we know that that was the case for all of us before we came to believe in God. See, that's the state of natural man. We would rather burn in hell than submit to Jesus as Lord. And you might say, well, Lucas, aren't you being a little bit harsh here? I want you to listen to this quote from a debate where a, a former pastor turned atheist, uh, Dan Barker, he said this. And actually I had a list of a bunch of quotes and this was the one that I, on the same topic that I, that I picked. He says, even if Jesus didn't exist, even if Jesus did exist, even if I agreed with my opponent 100%, yep, he rose from the dead, yep, there's a God, yep, I don't deny any of that, it does not mean that he is my Lord. If he did exist, I will go happily to hell. It would be worse 
of a hell for me to bow down before a Lord, regardless of the legend and historicity issue. Even if I agreed 100%, I would still reject that being as Lord of my life because I am better than that. I cannot accept Jesus as Lord. You're much freer to live and enjoy your life unshackled from his demands. Now, Dan Barker is bold enough to come out and say this, but it's really a reality of all who reject Jesus. Now, that was, that was the reality of, of my heart before Jesus graciously changed it. I didn't want anybody else to be Lord of my life. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I wanted to call the shots, and I was the King and the Lord. See, that's what, what the, the, the solution to all of this is. That Jesus needs to be the one to come and change our hearts. Now, you cannot change your own heart. You cannot change the heart of your children. You cannot change the heart of your spouse. The only one that can do that is the triune God. The Spirit must come and change the heart of the unbeliever. He must go and, and, and take that, that hard heart, reveal to us our sin, and then come and give us a new heart as is promised in Ezekiel 36 as a blessing of the new covenant. And so then what is our job? If I can't change your heart, if you can't change others' hearts, what is our job as Christians? Well, our job is to be faithful to what God has commanded us to do. To go and to preach the gospel, even though we're not the ones changing the hearts, to sit with our children and to, to teach them the word of God, to teach them, to show them their sin, to, to show them that Christ is the only one that can save them from their sin. And then also to pray, to pray, 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 just like George Mueller did for 52 years for his friends. And God rewarded that and changed the heart of those unbelievers. And so perhaps God will be merciful to those that we love who do not know the Lord, just like He has been merciful and gracious to sinners like us. Now on to the third and, and final example for us. Uh, let's look at the prophetess Anna in verses 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so here we're introduced to our third example of a faithful and devout follower of God. And again, we aren't, just like with Simeon, we aren't told much about Anna, but what we do know is that she's a woman who spent many years of her life in full devotion to the service of the Lord. She married her husband, and they were together for seven years before he died. She then lived uh, another 84 years, making her around probably 105 years old. Uh, my translation says, and then she lived till she was 84, but um, there's two translations of that, and I think the other one is actually more accurate. So she, all that to say, she lived a, 
a long life. She was an, an, an older lady who, who had a hard, long, and yet a life that was devoted to the Lord. Day and night, she was at the temple praying and fasting. And she probably could have remarried. There would have been nothing wrong with that. She, she could have settled down with another husband, served him faithfully as unto the Lord. But instead, she chose to devote herself to being a woman of prayer in the temple of God, eagerly awaiting the redemption of Israel. And I think Anna is a wonderful example for us that there is no retirement when it comes to Christianity. There's no point when we say, okay, I've, I've done my part, I've done enough, I've raised my children in the fear of the Lord, now it's time for me to just take it easy and coast to the finish line. Lately, it's, it's really saddened my heart, but I've been hearing more and more stories of older men or older women who have been you know, passionate about God in their younger years, faithfully serving Him. But once they, they reach an older age, they, they just back off. They, they distance themselves and live out the remainder of their life on cruise control. And it's sad because what the church needs is older men and women who don't see retirement as an opportunity to do less, but an opportunity to do more for the Lord. You know, when your, your kids leave the home, when your job doesn't carry the same demands that it used to, what you have now is the freedom to really devote yourself to the advancement of the kingdom. You know, some of the most productive years spiritually come later in life. You learn wisdom in your time that is meant to be passed on to others. And you might be you know, sore and and tired from your hard life, your body's ready to give way. But Anna shows us here that a, a woman or a man who is devoted to prayer and fasting can be one of the most powerful things for the kingdom of God. As I was preparing this message, I was reminded of a sermon I shared on Facebook. It was uh, preached by John Piper about 20 years ago about not wasting your life. And in that sermon, he tells uh, the story of, of two different groups of people. He first tells the story of two women from his church, Ruby and Laura. Ruby and Laura had, just a few weeks earlier, been killed while they were serving in Cameroon. Ruby was 80, single all her life, and she poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. And her partner, Laura, was a widow, a medical doctor, also pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. And then one day, as they were traveling to a village, the brakes in their car gave way and they flew off the cliff and died instantly. He then tells the second story from a Reader's Digest article of a couple named Bob and Penny. And the article reads, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball 
and collecting seashells. He then asked the question, which of these two stories is a tragedy? Is it the two old women who could have been off in New Mexico or Florida enjoying the last years of their life, but instead spent them in devotion to the Lord? Or is it Bob and Penny, who on the day of judgment, when asked what they have done for the glory of Christ, will have nothing to show God except a better swing and softball and a collection of seashells. See, that is the tragedy, my friends. We have one life to live here on this earth. Don't waste your life running after the things of this world, but give it all for the glory of God, for the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me finish with the words of the Apostle Paul about what is coming to those who sacrifice the comforts of this life for the glories of the next. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Let's pray.